Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. My guest today is Dr. Carrie Murphy. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is a licensed psychologist and owner of Pediatric Behavioral Interventions, LLC. She has more than 20 years of experience working with children and families in school, in a pediatric primary care, as well as private practice settings. As a pediatric psychologist, Dr. Carrie focuses on helping parents caregivers, and youth understand the significant relationship between physical and mental and behavioral health. She helps families implement evidence-based interventions to reach their individual behavioral and mental health goals for each child. And I met Carrie at church, and of course, in in uh, conversation, we both shared what we do, and I have been so Looking forward to speaking with you today, Dr. Carey. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's very um, exciting to um, be able to talk to you and um, for, you know, I'm usually seeing one person at a time. So maybe being able to reach a few more people this way. Absolutely. And that was one of the main reasons I started this podcast was because there's so many things that we just don't get a chance to talk about. And it's so important. But what I love about what your work is, is that you're really taking it, when I say back to basics, because there's nothing basic about it. But in when I'm talking to families, it's sometimes we just have to go back to how they're living their life and how that's affecting them. So what I what we're going to talk about today, if it's okay with you, is looking at those common reasons that parents are concerned about their child's challenging behavior. And I feel like listeners are going to be a little bit shocked to hear what those common reasons can be. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I um I I see this no matter what population that I'm working with. Um I've worked with families who um struggle to make ends meet, working, you know, two, three jobs and just trying to put food on the table and, and get their kids to bed safely every night. Um, to families that um, think that they're doing the right thing. And they often say to me, oh, I'm doing all these healthy things for for my child, for my children. And I really try to um, make a clear distinction between what idea they might have of healthy and kind of change that definition um, because it it may be that things that we think we're doing are healthy might be missing some of the most important parts of us and our kids having good health and good physical health and good behavioral or mental health are so interrelated um, that you have to have those those two together. So that's a, a place that we often start with is just kind of that idea of what's healthy and. And I take a family or a client from wherever they are. You know, some people will say, yeah, we're doing fast food three, four, five days a week. And I'm like, okay, let's start with that. Busy life. I get it. Right. And then other families will say, we eat salads all the time and, you know, we stick to grains and maybe we're trying to do a lot of vegetarian and maybe even going completely that way because they think it's healthier. And so I can take a family from wherever they are um, and kind of start talking about, um, you know, some of these um, different ways of looking at helping their children to be to be healthy and surprisingly to most of them change their child's behavioral or mental health. That's challenges that are going on that they probably came to see me for in the first place. It sounds to me like what you're doing is kind of like that which came first, the chicken or the egg. So is there is is there behavioral or mental concerns first and then they started having stomach issues or sleep issues or because of the sleep or the gut, and I'm segueing here, um, 
that is why. And I think a lot of times people are putting the, you know, not connecting the fact that the mind-body connection can make a big difference. And I'm not saying that it it can't start with a diagnosis or something like that. But usually there, I mean, even, even eczema, like I see a lot of kids that have a lot of behavioral problems who have skin problems, you know, and many times people don't really relate those things or acne and how it's affecting them emotionally, et cetera. But what would you say is the number one reason? So number one is for behavioral challenges, mental health challenges is almost completely poor sleep. So, you know, a typical person might come to me and say, hey, I have a five-year-old and I'm wondering if they have ADHD. And I will start, I'll go back to the basics. Like you said, go back to the very beginning. And I, I ask about like, you know, prenatal things that were going on, but usually kind of starting from birth and, and, and early infancy. And I'm looking for things like ear infections and eczema and colicky or, or a lot of reflux as a, as a kid. I'm looking at some of those very beginning things. And more often than not, there's signs and symptoms from those first few months, you know, definitely listening to that. So um, I was mentioning the sleep because 50 to 70% of kids have like poor either quality or quantity of sleep. Wow. So that's your most common reason for things. But one of the most common reasons for sleep issues is gut health issues. So those kind of go hand in hand, I said kind of, but really do go hand in hand as the two starting places for me. And as I'm listening to a family kind of tell me their story and tell me their history, I'm listening for you know, indicators of gut health issues, of sleep health issues. And I'm usually starting with the gut health intervention. Um, a lot of times I'm slipping in some sleep things there too, <laughs> right at the beginning, depending, especially if they're not getting quite enough sleep. Maybe they just don't understand. I had a family last week um, that I started with and we were talking about their child and they didn't realize their child was getting about two hours less per night of average sleep for their child's age. Hmm. And they said, I had no idea. And I was like, let's just start with that. Let's just start with where can we find an extra like two hours in the day? And, you know, both parents work and they're like, that's really hard because by the time we pick them up from daycare and get them home and have dinner, where's our quality time? And so, yeah. you know, we looked at, can we add a little at the beginning, add a little bit at the in the morning, not quite waking them as early? Could, um, you know, could they get a nap in somewhere like right after school or, you know, when they were with their daycare, um, trying to extend it that way. Um, so, you know, we definitely look at those two pieces together as far as gut health and sleep health and listening for signs and symptoms and addressing those. Um, and I really try to make that connection for parents and caregivers. Like, I know you came to me because your child's having panic attacks, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, and I get that a lot, you know, I get these panic attack reactions and I'm like, but trust me when we've got to build up the body, we've got to make the body strong enough to be able to handle the stressors that are the last thing that caused the panic attack. But there's also all of the biological part of stress reaction, panic, panic reaction that, you know, if we can lower that, improve that ability, you improve the ability for the mind and body to tolerate those stressors and not go into like a panic attack or for younger kids, it may not be a panic attack. It may look like a tantrum. It may look like running away. It may look like, um, I did a, a meeting uh, a couple of weeks ago and I invited several of my clients if they wanted to come and kind of talk to each other and, and just on a similar journey. And I had eight families come together and one of the families said it started with my child being like heckle and jide. It started with I my child. Today. It's like so common. And literally I watched on this, it was a you know telehealth meeting and I watched all of the families nodding. And so I said, raise your hand if you've used that description or a similar description to describe your child, every one of them. 
they would say, my child can be so sweet, so loving. And then out of nowhere, it's like, who is this child? And why can I not console them? You know, why are they having so much difficulty? And I'm like, that's because when you're gut and is, is really upset, and I don't mean upset, like, like uh, having poor elimination, although it can be a sign, but your gut is not happy. And your, your mind is not getting enough rest for, you know, restful sleep with those two things. The child can't just be consoled. Their body is kind of like revolting and saying, I'm exhausted or I'm frustrated. And so, you know, just watching all of those families nod in agreement that they see these ups and downs. Um, it's, it was just really, um, renewed in me, you know, why I do what I do and, and how um, so many families can um, address sleep and gut issues and help their child or children and usually themselves. I almost always have one of the parents nodding in agreement that they've gone through similar things as their kids, you know, to just feel better, to just feel less stressed, to feel feel more even and more enjoy just daily life better. I know. And it's, you know, what I love about too, I mean, first of all, I want to let you know, literally today, I had a grandparent who was talking about their grandson. And he said, he goes, it's, it's like flicking a switch, you know, and flipping the switch. And he said, one minute, he's, just totally great. Next minute, it's like complete dysregulation. So it's interesting. And I think people don't realize they're kind of thinking, well, what's wrong with my kid? You know, there must be something wrong. Maybe they are on the spectrum or, you know, like you said, ADHD or whatever. And I get, I get as caregivers, you know, we just want to figure out what's going on and, and how we can help them. And no doubt, you know, we're all just trying to do the best we can and I do hear a lot of times, you know, it's like, well, I, you know, we're already doing this, we're already doing that. And so it's like, I love how you say, well, let's just start there because yeah, you might be doing everything right. Keep doing those things, but maybe we need to be doing some things differently. So yeah. On, yeah. on average, I mean, how much sleep do you typically try to recommend um, for children, you know, based on their age? Yeah. So an easy thing for parents to remember is they can just go to like Google American Academy of Pediatrics sleep for my kid and chart good charts come up accurate. They're all within about an hour of each other, different ones. So I don't always say go Google something, but that's something <laughs> they can definitely go and look because it does change, you know, pretty from like, you know, infancy to, to toddler, young child. Um, so it just depends on the age of the child. Um, but for example, if I'm looking at, you know, second, third grade age kid, they should still be well in that nine to 11 hours per night. And the hardest part is it should be nine to 11 hours of quality sleep yes, per night. Yes. So that's a big part of it. But I will also say that the, the, the qualitative measure or indicator I use of whether a child is getting enough sleep, a good quality, excuse me, quantity of sleep is do they wake rested in the morning and do they get sleepy throughout the day? You know, so a lot of times for school age kids or kids going to preschool, I'll say, how many mornings per week is your child waking themselves? And how many days are you waking them? And they're kind of like pulling the blanket back over, like mm -hmm. not wanting to get up and not ready to go. You know, if you, any of us, whether you're five or you're 80, you know, we, if we're getting good sleep, we should be waking naturally and kind of, you know, stretch and be like, I'm ready. I feel rested and ready to, to, you know, face the day. And the hard part too, is that a lot of people don't realize that the brain tracks what we call sleep deprivation for actually about 14 days. Wow. So it's fun. I, I like to use whole numbers with the kids, but we'll <laughs> oftentimes do a little math and I'll say, okay, if you need, you know, this is how I get buy-in from young kids, you know, five, six, seven years old. I'll say, if you need 
you know, 10 hours of sleep a night and you're getting nine, how many are you short? Most of them can say, you know, one hour. All right. Right. And then the parent might help depending on the age or the second, third graders going, I can do this. And it's like, all right, what's one times 14? And they go 14 and they're all excited. So I'm like, all right. So if you're getting an hour less sleep per night, you are walking around like a 14 hour deprived and I'll use words like zombie or, you know, things like that that the kids can really latch on to. And I, I'm using a lot of kid examples, but my teenagers are the same way. Yes, I mean, you know, teenage bodies, their circadian rhythms, the rhythm at which their body tells them it's time to fall asleep is pretty late at night. But then their school, you know, I have teenagers that are falling asleep at midnight and getting up for school at 5, 530. Right. And I'm like, you're probably two hours sleep deprived every day. And then times that times 14, you're walking around 28 hours sleep deprived. Wow. That's why, same thing for a parent, right? Yeah. <laughs> Most parents are sleep deprived. You see, that's why when you sleep in on a Saturday, you get a chance to get a nap, you don't necessarily feel better. Because if you get a two-hour nap, now you're only 26 hours sleep deprived, right? So, you know, that is such a key part. And you know, school schedules are are hard for that. Um, there's a lot of states, though, that are starting to recognize that and move towards, you know, later start times for, you know, high schools and middle schools. But until then, we have to get really creative. You know, I have a lot of teenagers that I try to get them to take a nap after school or nap between when their school ends and their baseball practice starts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we look at that, you know, kind of indicators of, of sleep deprivation. Are they waking rested? Are they feeling really tired during the day? Um, and some of those things. The other thing I mentioned too is, you know, when you sleep, it's not just the amount of time. So I have quite a few of my clients that say, okay, they go to bed at this time and they wake up at this time. And when you do the math, that should be enough sleep. And yet they're still really tired. And so then we start looking at the quality of the sleep. Mm -hmm. What's going on in the middle of that sleep, right? Um, You know, are they waking up a lot? And we tend to think of waking up as the kid gets up and comes in our bed, right? Or comes and wakes us up. Or maybe they went and used the bathroom once before, like once during the night. But I I just had a family um, recently... I am not think, saying that this is the same as a sleep study. Absolutely not. However, a quick and kind of easy way for a lot of families to look at their kids' sleep is to use a smartwatch or I use the, I like the Fitbits because they can't get on the internet from it. Yeah. So they can put it on them at night and kind of see what's, you know, what's going on. And so I had a family that I've been working with for a little while. We've been really looking at the sleep for a while and they've done a much better job at getting the child to sleep. She was having some behavioral challenges at night. And so we really worked on that. And so she's falling asleep great now. And, um, but she still had a lot of things that were saying to me, I don't think this quality of sleep is very good. And so, um, she just turned five. They decided to get a Fitbit and they put it on her at night. And so we looked at, we started looking at the data and what's great is, Mom is very, I'm a very data-based person. Yeah. She really latched on to this idea of like, oh, I can actually like get a better sense of what's going on with her sleep. And so um, she looked at, we looked, you know, we come to the session, we look at the data and the child was waking up. I mean, you know, rolling over waking up, which you can see on their sleep chart. I mean, just more times than I can count. Per night. And what it also showed is that because of that, she wasn't getting through the sleep cycles. So she mm. wasn't getting to, so at her age, her sleep cycle is probably somewhere between 60 and 75 minutes for teenagers and adults, about 90 minutes. She wasn't getting through the sleep cycles. And so she wasn't getting to that deep, juicy part of sleep mm-hmm. where you heal both physically, but a lot of people don't realize that deep sleep, you feel, you heal psychologically, right? You know, all sorts of good things happen in our brain when we sleep that help us to be able to resolve stressors from the past and prepare us to handle the stressors coming. And the parents were like, whoa, she's, she's not getting into this deep sleep at all. And so, you know, we talked to us like, listen, you can go and get a sleep study, which I often recommend when I see sleep like that. But my gut was that something no pun intended. With her. 
Yes. <laughs> but that something's been going on with her, um, with her diet, with her gut. Okay. That she, I think, has kind of a like a food allergy intolerance that's been um, hasn't been diagnosed, or we haven't figured out what it is yet. And so um, I gave them some options. I said, "Look, you can keep a, a food journal. We can look that way. Yeah. You can start with one of the most common foods that kids can be allergic to or intolerant to. We can eliminate that for a week or two, which is." One of the most, which is the most evidence-based thing for food intolerances. I was like, or we can go ahead and do a sleep study, you know? And so they were like, journal, we're going to journal. Yeah. And sometimes, <laughs> so, you know, yeah, even if you have to, that's a great idea because even if you do order the sleep study, it could be a couple months. So, I mean, that's a great thing to do now. I'm not suggesting you have to do order both, but yeah, sorry, I, I interrupted you, but absolutely. I think that's a great idea. No, absolutely. And, you know, they asked one of the most common questions that parents ask me, which is, what about going and seeing an allergist? Mm -hmm. And I, I often have that as somewhere in our continuum, but there's a difference between allergies and intolerances. Right. Um, you know, allergy, obviously, being that more anaphylactic reaction, we all think of the, the kid with the peanut allergy who has to have the EpiPen walking mm -hmm. around. But it's a continuum. It's a pretty wide continuum, too, yeah. that um, I believe... I need to go double check the exact numbers, but I believe it's around 50 to 70% of kids um, who have what I like to call ADHD-ish or autism-ish symptoms, meaning they meet the criteria, whether they're diagnosed with it or not, um, have undiagnosed food allergies or intolerances. So it's extremely high for the population of kids who have these neurological symptoms. Um, and the numbers are very similar for kids who have the more, the, you know, the mood disorder symptoms like anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, anger symptoms. Um, so those are, those are really high. And so the issue is if we're only looking for the reactions that are these severe ones, we right. often miss the reactions that are, that are more minor. So you're like, oh, they're minor. What are they really doing to me? Right. But for example, let's say you have an egg allergy. And it's leading to some flushing and some hotness, right? And so they're having that and the symptoms aren't usually immediate. They can often be hours and hours later. So a lot of times I have parents when I'm looking at that sleep data, they'll say, my kid sleeps really hot, just like his dad. And I'm like, that's not normal. Yeah. <laughs> like that's a symptom, right? That's sleeping so hot that they don't want to put pajamas on. They're kicking their covers off during the night. That is not okay sleep. That right. is disrupting their sleep. And that is usually a really common symptom of a food allergy. Mm. So it may come a lot of times at night, right? So they have that kind of hotness or they kind of sweat a lot as a kid. You know, they're kind of flush more often than other kids. I'm listening for these things, you know, as they're talking. And so, you know, those can be food allergies, continuums. Intolerances is in the gut. It's more about the digestion, right? And it's not just really, it's not in the stomach. It's not where that first place it goes. It's while it moves through those really long colons that we have in the <laughs> digestive system that we have. And so, you know, again, those symptoms can be two, three days later, so I'm listening for things like stinky poop, right? People yeah. just don't realize that. Stink, our poop is not supposed to be that stinky. Yeah. If, you know, if your child is going to the bathroom and you're like, woo, you know, or, or yourself, you know, that's an indicator that something's not great in there. Um, but, you know, while you have these two continuums that are different body responses, there's also a lot of overlap. And the big overlap is the inflammation and irritation it causes. And that inflammation and irritation can actually stay in our system for three to four weeks. Mm. So if you think about that, like what's the big deal if they have a minor reaction to egg or soy or they have an intolerance to gluten? They can still tolerate eating a little bit of it. Sure they can. Yeah. But if they're having gluten that they the body goes, ugh, every time you eat it and you're eating it four or five times a day and that's adding up, 
that inflammation we know is a strong, strong relationship to all of these mood and irritability and focus issues that are so common in kids. And the research for adults is related to joint health issues and cardiac issues. And it just spans the lifetime that when you have things that are going on in your body that cause chronic inflammation, that chronic inflammation can have just dire long-term, you know, long-term effects on, on, on our health across our, our ages. And I would imagine too, that if you're, if this chronic inflammation is affecting you and you get, and I'm using quotations and no one can see me do that, but, and you're getting used to it, even though you can say, well, every day I feel crappy every day. I don't get good sleep every day. I'm stressed out. Um, you might not pinpoint it because it's just how you feel all the time. So you're not, Absolutely. you think this is the way I'm supposed to feel. I, Absolutely. I, I want to, you know, I talked in the beginning about how, you know, skin relation and I was reviewing one of your notes um, and um, I want to mention that Dr. Carey, you know, talks to providers, talks to parents talks to individuals, you know, and she's, she's, she's an author as well. And, and, you know, what I, what I love is I was reviewing one of um, a presentation that you've given in the past and it's, it's resonating to me as a parent and I'm going to share it with everybody because my son Gabe, you know, I would have said, you know, Oh, he has no intolerances. No, no. He he was a picky eater, which now looking back makes me wonder if he was avoiding certain foods because kids will do that. Yeah. And again, that kind of goes back to the mental health. You know, they're coming in. Oh, they're so picky. They're so picky. And maybe what they're doing is unconsciously avoiding things that they already know bother them. Number one. Number two, he had the stinkiest gas, like such stinky gas, you know, and it was like, but he never had stomach aches, never had problems with constipation, vomiting, grew well. So here's a kid who, all intents and purposes, you wouldn't consider other than smell of gas, right? And being a picky eater, which you might not put together with his challenging behavior. But one of the things that I had, in addition to other challenging behaviors, but one was we went a whole year where he would not wear socks, Absolutely. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, that's another symptom that I look at for, you know, what I'm hearing, won't wear socks, takes their clothes off, things irritate them. I had one kiddo that I was working with who they would have battled every morning over combing his hair because his scalp was so sensitive. And I'm like, that is your skin reacting. That is your skin saying, I don't like something that's going on. You know, our skins are, are, I think, good, really good communicators. And if I go back to the, to the, the little girl who was, had all this, the night wakings that she wasn't getting up out of her bed, but she was tossing and turning during the night. She, her, her parents have always said she doesn't like touch. You know, she lots, she can initiate it as fine, but she does not like to, you know, she's starting to run off, grabbing her arm will get this big reaction because of the touch. And I'm like, that is, I can't always, I can't say a hundred percent, but that is typically an indicator that there's, there's gut health issues or an allergic reaction going on there and figuring that out. And what you said about your son, who's probably like, thanks mom. But (laughs) (laughs) I know, sorry, Gabe. He's like, he's he's in his thirties now, but I mean, I mean, we even came up with a song just to get him to put socks on. We turned the socks inside out so that he wouldn't wear the crease. And then finally I just gave up and he just had dirty feet all, you know, I mean, he still wore shoes. Yeah. All those things. And I never attributed it to having to do with his gut. But what I will say is now that he's older, he has discovered through his own kind of elimination um, process that he is sensitive to gluten and dairy. And uh, if you would have asked me, you know, before this, I would have been like, no, you know, my kids never had any problems with, with food, but you know, thankfully he was able to figure it out and he's, he's doing great. And so 
lot of times we we don't we can't forget that you know we want to think oh it's all behavioral it's all behavioral you know they're not a good kid or you know they're Dr Jekyll or Mr Hyde as you mentioned and and it it's it's wonderful that you look into kind of let's look back into the body not just into the mind. Yeah. The picky eating you mentioned is a symptom I see often because it's not conscious. You know, it's not usually, I mean, maybe by like middle school, high school, kids might be starting to put two and two together, but subconsciously the brain will recognize, hey, when you eat this, it doesn't make me feel good, right? And so there's that connection between the gut and the brain. They kind of talk. And so when I hear picky eaters, that's what I, it's another, you know, indicator I'm looking at. And then they'll say, but They'll eat it when it's this. And I'm like, ooh, that's what I call the it's worth the cheat. It means (laughs) that it tastes so good. Or unfortunately, it has some of the things in it, some of the ingredients in it that we know are kind of addictive or kind of play tricks on our mind and and actually bind to the opioid receptors in the brain, like high sugar foods that the brain goes, the the desire for the, ooh, taste that like 20 seconds while eating it, you know, will convince the brain or kind of overstep that signal that's going, you shouldn't eat that, you shouldn't eat that. So a lot of times parents go, well, they don't really, here's a good example. They don't really like cheese. They really kind of stay away from that except a pizza, uh, right? Like, or, or I get the, um, you know, they don't eat a lot except for like certain chicken nuggets. And I had a parent who we've been doing, um, so I'll go into this in a minute, but we've started with clean eating. He's actually a, a two and a half year old who was having these ups and downs and going back to the allergy versus intolerance thing, they had had him allergy tested. You know, they didn't do everything, but they kind of did the most common. Right. And it said, you know, the the, the, the results from the physician or from the allergist was pretty clear at the top. It said no reaction to these foods. And at the bottom kind of buried, it was like diagnosed with lactose intolerance. Okay. Well, Parents missed it for whatever reason, and and, and I don't blame them because they actually sent it to me, and I was like, oh, it's kind of buried in this bottom part. And so they had been giving him dairy, and here was a kid who was fighting, headbanging, doing all these things, and I was like, we're going to start with cleaning out the diet, so clean ingredients, meaning getting rid of the processed foods, the things that actually stress all of our insides, mm-hmm. right? But that some people just have bigger reactions to than others, eliminating what we call the excitotoxin foods, like food dyes and some very specific um, preservatives that are that are just man-made that we don't have the enzymes. None of us have the enzymes to break down. So we cleaned them out, right? We just got rid of some of those things and we um, eliminated at first all dairy. And I said, I want to do this so that his, his gut gets a break. So we eliminated all dairy. By the way, he was having explosive poops. He was having, you know, big tantrums at home and at school, a lot of issues. And, um, we, we got his poop back to, you know, the dad's descriptions of the child's poop were really funny. He's like, it's solid. Like it's solid. (laughs) And so, you know, we got him back to that. And I said, okay, so now that we're at a place for a couple of weeks where his gut seems like it's kind of healed, right. By the way, the head banging stopped, the tantrums went significantly down, um, He also had language impairments that were drastically improving. Um, You know, he was getting some speech therapy, but I really feel like the inflammation was affecting him. Um, So, you know, all these things were improving. I said, all right, we're going to slowly reintroduce just lactose-free dairy. Because lactose was this issue and not the allergy, which is usually related to the proteins in in milk. I said, we're just going to a couple times a week reintroduce lactose-free dairy. So he was doing really well. Um, I won't say which parent, just so no blame, but one of the parents said, you know, hey, he had a rough, like he'd been doing really well. And I saw him in session. They said, he had a rough couple days. And I said, okay, well, let's look at what he ate. And she was like, well, it was pretty good. Um, but there was some um, Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. Chick-fil-A don't yell at me. But um, <laughs> I said, okay, so I want you to pull up the ingredients in Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. And, you know, they taste delicious, right? Like that's why we go for Chick-fil-A chicken nuggets. But unfortunately, there's soy, there's milk, there's gluten um, and some other like processed ingredients that are hard for a lot of kids. And the mom was like, I had no idea. Dad was like, I had no idea. I did not know that milk 
within these chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it was making yeah. a big difference for him. Yeah. I mean, one exposure, you know, a day or two later of, or kind of starting the next day for about two days, he had diarrhea, he had irritability, he had tantrums, probably poor sleep those nights. We're not tracking his sleep with a Fitbit or anything, but you know, all of those things. And going back to that meeting I had um, with all the eight families, they were talking about that kind of, you know, two different personalities of their kid. All of them kind of said that, you know, they're, they're at different places of their journey, but they've all done step one, which is clean eating. Yeah. And a lot of them have done, you know, step two, which is then figuring out if there's specific allergy or intolerance triggers and trying to eliminate that. So this talk that I had with them, this kind of meeting was about them sharing their tips and strategies with each other. You know, yeah. what do you, what do your kids like at the grocery store? I'm a foodie. I don't want to eat anything that doesn't taste good. Right. But I don't want to eat something that's going to upset my system and lead to all these other, you know, difficulties. Um, and so they all talked about that. They all talked about, you know, when they have these certain things, it really just the next day or two is just, and now that I know, like the empowerment part is knowing, A, like you said, what what feels good? I mean, I've had five-year-olds, four-year-olds say, be able to explain that they feel better. But before they didn't know they didn't feel good because they didn't know any differently than that, right? But the empowerment part is parents going, okay, I know what the trigger was. You know, maybe they had a treat at baseball or the class snack was given out or something like that. And they all have strategies now to to use to try to kind of switch out with kids when they're given a snack that they know they can't have. They can trade it for a special snack. They keep it home that doesn't have any of their triggers and that are that are clean foods. Um, so that empowerment part is where we're trying to get to with all the families is, you know, what are the causes? What can I do about it? And can I cheat? Some kids can. Some kids can tolerate a little bit of if maybe dairy, dairy is their trigger or gluten is their trigger. They can tolerate it like once a week and not flip into the other side of their personality. Um, and some kids can't. I find that a lot with kids who, not every kid is, but a lot of kids are sensitive to food dyes. And, yes. um, and that's pretty the kids that we figure out that's one of their triggers, it's pretty straight up. They'll have a sports drink or they'll have something that we don't even think about having food dye in it. And they'll just be really off for the next couple of days. What's interesting too, is that many times it's hard for families then to, to make that quick change in regards to clean eating. And I, I sometimes as a pediatrician get a little pushback and I get it because like one of the first things you said in our podcast was meeting the family where they're at. And so yep. what I want listeners to understand is that, yeah, you know, this is a stepwise process. It's, it's, it's very stepwise and it's it's okay. And and I love this approach that you're taking because I often now when I first of all, when I deal with picky eaters, I try to tell parents instead of asking them how did it taste, I'm starting to say, ask them how the food made them feel, which is a little awesome. bit different, you know, approach to it. And then on the flip side, we want our kids to grow up and have a good relationship to food. And, you know, I'm a lot older than you, but we were raised in that this food is good for you, this food is bad for you, you know, that's bad. But what I'm really trying to teach in my practice is these are foods that make you feel good. And these some sometimes these foods don't make you feel very good. Or I'll use words like all the time foods and some of the time foods, you know, so that you don't get that restrictive behavior. But it, it's tough. You know, it's tough being a parent because yeah. even as you mentioned, you know, they could be at practice, they could be at a friend's, they could be at school. But, you know, it doesn't have to be overwhelming. Just take it back to the basics, right? 
Absolutely. You know, what you said about starting where families are, my first kind of homework assignment for them is usually to start checking labels. And a lot of times in our session, I'll have them go get common food. And this goes back to what I was saying before about, I think marketing over the years has really given us one idea of what healthy is. And I'm like, healthy isn't isn't just having lettuce, right? It's not that. It's healthy as can our food, die, can our body digest it? And so, I try to really get parents to change their language and try to get kids to change their language. I try, instead of saying, I eat healthy, and somebody hands them, uh, like, our grocery store, I know the grocery store is probably by you, they, they, do, they do subs, you know, and we have this from marketing for decades, right, that, oh, sub sandwich or sub sandwich from wherever is this great healthy food to have yeah unfortunately the bread has so many additives often not always but you know usually has so many things added to it it's not the bread that our grandparents went to the bakery it was fresh made and and got anymore there's all sorts of things added to um a lot of the deli meats right so a lot of times i'm like hey you know what I want you to think about is not what the child can't have, but what do they like and how can I say yes to it? Mm-hmm. So if they're a big sandwich kid, I'm like, hey, let's find breads that are that don't have all those things in them. Let's find clean versions of breads. Um, even a lot of my busy, busy families will end up making bread or finding a local bakery that, that you know, it doesn't need to be a gluten-free bread, but I find that some local bakeries that kind of cater to those tend to have really good ingredients in their regular bread too. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, let's find meat that they can have. You know, a lot of times you can actually just make a roast on Sunday if they want roast beef and then slice it and you've got excellent deli meat for the week, right? Yeah. Um, or trying to find ones that doesn't have the sulfates added to it and some of those other things added to it. So, you know, how, so I start with check labels. Let's look at the labels. Let's look at what's in that. I have uh, some handouts. I send parents with all sorts of like, you know, brands that I know that are pretty clean and different things. And I'm not sponsored by anybody, I promise, but just things like that, that help to, um, to be able to say yes to those things. Chicken nuggets, like I mentioned before, there are some really good, clean versions in the frozen food section of most grocery stores now. 10 years ago, this was a lot harder conversation, but now we can actually go and I can say, listen, it probably exists in your local grocery store. You just have to find it. So step one is checking labels. And when you go to the store, kind of turn it over. One of my parents has been on this journey for a while and the transition and her child's mood and emotions has just been amazing. And, um, she, she is fantastic. Whenever I have a parent that seems to be struggling, she's more than willing to reach out to them. And she's like, I just got to pay it forward. Like, Uh you know, learning all this and understanding this. And she, she will describe that when she first started doing it, she said there was times where I left the grocery store frustrated and in tears because Uh there were so many products that are things that are just the, the, front and center when you go in the grocery store they're like you have the word healthy on them you know and so I would turn it over and I would see like all these things in there that I know my son is going to react to and I can control this I can control what goes in his little body every day and so she's like I might put it aside and then go back another day and just pick up five more things or ten more things and you know they're about a year maybe into this journey she goes now I go to the grocery store I know what he'll you know all the treats I have a whole like bonus snack section that's clean foods that he can trade out foods he gets from school and and home and so you know it really is like you said taking parents from where they are and helping them step by step I will say that sometimes parents just aren't at a place where they feel that they can make those changes and that's probably the hardest for me as a provider um, because they, for whatever reason, a lot of times I think it's their own journey that they're going through yeah. and they just don't feel the strength to change these. Or sometimes they don't have the buy-in, um, you know, about these changes. And I definitely do other interventions, cognitive behavioral therapy interventions, you know, positive parent-based interventions. I do parent-child interaction therapy. I do all sorts of other things that, that couple on these. Um, and those help. Those absolutely help. But 
whenever you're doing just half of a human being, you know, you're just doing addressing half of them, you can just keep seeing these other half where you go, I wish we could work on that or wish we could, you know, help that half of them. And so, you know, that's something that I often say to parents. You have kids who sometimes come to me. I had one girl who came to me. She was in and out of being hospitalized for behavioral emotional reasons. She was on seven or eight different like big medications. And, you know, after about six months of working together, she had zero hospitalizations and her psychiatrist and I, and she really has a whole team. I'm just part of that team for an agreement that the ultimate goal is to get her off of most of these medications. And so by cleaning out her diet and we, um, we did, we recognized some food um, intolerances. She also had some allergy testing and had quite some reactions to, you know, quite a few things. Um, for her, the other piece too is it's not just elimination, which is important, but you know, if you have um, dairy issues or we have to eliminate dairy, that means you're probably not getting a lot of your healthy fats, a lot of your healthy proteins, a lot of your vitamin D that you might be getting or absorbing from those products. So a lot of these kids are low on nutrients. So getting blood work done, if they'll tolerate the blood yeah. work, is uh, you know, a lot of times on this journey somewhere, usually after we clean out and after, you know, we might do a little bit of elimination of some specific things. Um, but oftentimes kids with lactose or dairy issues are low on vitamin D. Um, most kids with ADHD, I don't know most, but a significant percentage of kids with ADHD and um, autism symptoms are um, low on omegas. And I, you know, I look at those tests in addition to their their physicians because sometimes they're still in the, you know, I know you see these blood results all the time, Dr. Sarah, and then you get the little red flag next to the ones that are low or high, right? Right. Quick scan those things, which you do, you're running through your practice, right? And I'll look and I'll be like, hey, you know, that might be average range, but that number right there is about 18th percentile. Do you really think you feel good with vitamin D or with omegas if you're at the 18th percentile? Yeah. You know, so it may be that they need just um, what I call therapeutic over-the-counter dosages, right? And they need to be, again, clean versions of those. So, you know, not just taking away and eliminating things, but looking at the whole physical symptom um, system and what is it not getting that it needs? What does it need more of? And sometimes you can do that just by eating foods. You know, I had a father the other day who said, you know, we're vegetarian. I said, okay, no problem. I have families I work with who are vegetarian for religious reasons. I have no problem with that. And he was, he said, because it's healthier. Ah. And so his kid eats some meats, but it's much more limited than I think most kids would. And I'm like, you know, we look at ways to get like from red meats, you get healthy fats again, you get healthy proteins, but you also get a lot of the B vitamins. Yes. B vitamins are really associated with anxiety, right? With all, with mood. And so I'm like, Hey, can we look at some places to bring back energy? Yeah. You know, I, (laughs) a lot of parents are surprised they can often get rid of their morning coffee by adding things that have B vitamins in them. Mm. And they're surprised, like, really? I can go caffeine free or or light, caffeine light, you know, maybe some green tea or occasional coffee instead of the how many cups they're doing. So, you know, we looked at ways that they were comfortable adding back in clean food. So we did some bone, some beef broths, you know, things like that, that they were comfortable with that really got in some more of those vitamins for their whole family, not just the child. So, you know, there's definitely a process. There's definitely steps to it. But I think if you um, know that this is part of having good behavioral and mental health, that is step one. So that's where I would start. Excellent. Wow. I, I'm so glad we had this discussion and I, I really hope you'll come back because, and, and talk more. I knew when we first met, and, you know, you right away were talking about that connection. And it was at a time in my practice where I was realizing it because a lot of pediatric healthcare providers aren't taught in that way to kind of put that mind-body connection. And I really appreciate what you mentioned about the blood work because a lot of times now with my chart and everything, and I highly recommend, you know, if you get, if your child has tests, you know, if you have tests, look it up write down those little things that it's red or, you know, something. And don't be afraid to ask. Even if someone calls you and says they're normal, 
Because a lot of times, maybe it isn't something that a physician or healthcare provider says you need now to treat, I need to treat this. It could be a little bit out of range, but not what we call significant, but it might be enough that it could be changing how you feel. And so I think that that's a great tip um, to, to remind people of. So thank you again. I know we could talk about this all day. And so that's why I'd love to have you back. But um, if you could just give us maybe one or two take home message, you know, we've, we've probably already addressed it, but just one or two things you want families to really take away from our discussion. That the gut and the brain, that physical health and mental health are together. You, you can't separate the two. Um, that would be a big takeaway. And so if your child is misbehaving or struggling or, you know, a teenager is particularly irritable, whatever it is, Think of it as the bot as them communicating to you that there's something struggling and that that starting place very well may be the gut and the biology part. So, you know, a lot of times we think that they are acting out against us. And I think if we can change that mind shift to be like, maybe there's most likely there's something going on with them and ask these questions that we've talked about today. How is their sleep? How is their gut health? What are the indicators that we can look at for gut health? Um, And I can change those. I mean, you know, like I said, ask that question. Can I change some of these things? Can I improve some of those things? You're probably going to see improved outcomes. Um, And, you know, empowering, you know, include the child in this, you know, really, like I said, four or five years old, they're usually part of planning this thing. What food do you like? What food are you missing? What food do you wish you could have all the time that mom and dad are now telling you you can't have because Dr. Carey said that was on your list, That's right? right? Like, let's figure out a way to do that. Kids said to me, um, Oreos. And I, we figured out a way to make something that made it feel like he was having Oreos, you know, that was chocolatey. I mean, you know, chocolate is actually really good for us. Believe it or not, there's lots of good nutrients. It's what's usually in chocolate that's difficult. You know, I have a lot of kids adding chocolate to their breakfast and they're like, really, Dr. Like, absolutely. You know, if you can get the no sugar added, you can stir it into something that you can have, has all these nice mood boosters. So, you know, know that there's a relationship. Ask yourself the question of where can I, where do I see symptoms? What can I change? And and include the child on this journey so that they learn to define a healthy different, to say, I need to eat clean. I need to eat for what my body goes. Yes. Instead of my body goes, ugh. Yeah. And just overall feel better, behave better, learn better, et cetera. Thank you so much again, Dr. Carey, for joining us. Thanks for listening to another episode of Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. If you enjoyed this episode and think the information shared here today could benefit someone else, take a screenshot of the episode and post to your Instagram story. Make sure you tag us at Growing Up with Dr. Sarah so we can spread the word about the show and continue to grow in our mission to support as many parents and families as possible. Hey, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or would like to suggest a topic, please visit www.growingupwithdrsarah.com slash contact. Thanks again for spending time with us today. Stay tuned for a brand new episode next week as we continue to grow up together.